Welcome to another edition of the Work Life Hub podcast. To find out more and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.eu. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Today we are joined by Scott Scheman from Toronto, a professor at the University of Toronto Department of Sociology. He has a, a number of very impressive research studies already in his uh, collection. Uh, previously, he worked at the University of Maryland and University of Miami. And main research areas are social psychology, sociology of mental health, medical sociology, and work-related issues. Um, his current research grant has sparked a lot of attention, also a lot of media attention, namely around work family demands and resources and their implications for health among Canadians. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Did I introduce you correctly? <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> Thanks. That was great. I, we, we both found your, um, your work very, very interesting, and it's such a specific um, cross-section of both health and work. And we were wondering, how did you get into this? Um, I think initially my main interest was in understanding emotional inequality in the population. So in that effort, I tried to understand some of the key stressors and um, uh, demands that put pressure on people in everyday life. And in that exploration, really focused mainly in on the key social roles that people find themselves in, mainly work, and then in the family, parenthood, and, and marriage to a large extent, and to some degree neighborhoods as well. But um, And so then when I started exploring uh, more of the work-related issues, I just became more and more um, curious about work-family stress and, and uh, the nature of the work-family interface and the things that affect it. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your current research, this large-scale longitudinal research? Yeah, sure. So um, in 2011, we interviewed roughly 6,000 Canadians from across the country, uh, across basically tried to get a, a nationally representative sample of working adults and um, asked them a lot of questions about their health and about work, about their family life, um, the division of household labor, all kinds of questions. Um, some of some of which were were um, based on the national study of the changing workforce in the United States. So we sort of use that as our model, and um, and then we we received f enough funding to be able to follow them up over time. So we we re-interviewed them in 2013, and we're about to re-interview them the same individuals um, again in in 2015. And then subsequently, every two years after that, for five waves. Um, so that's you know, it's a it's a very large longitudinal study. Um, and again, we started with six thousand people. Hopefully, we'll keep as many of them as we can. Um, and then also, I can talk about this later if you'd like. We're also doing in-depth qualitative interviews with various subsamples of that larger sample to really get at a rich qualitative portrait of work-life issues. I've read um, in some of your previous research work and also on your profile at the Toronto University that you're interested in 
um, you know, a very broad socioeconomic uh, spectrum. And here at the Work Life Hub, we're quite keen to explore how uh, work-life uh, integration or balance is possible also for not just the high-end, you know, earners and the most qualified, but also for people working in retail or manufacturing or, or more precarious jobs. In this sample of the 6,000, did you have a good mixture of, of all kinds of uh, job types and, and working conditions? Yeah, we really tried to get a good mixture across the entire range. So we have a lot of people in production, labor, service, sales, um, all kinds of different occupations and job sectors and titles and so forth. And part of that interest is in really understanding the ways that work and life, um, work life and work family issues differ or are the same for those for those groups. So in terms of levels of status, um, you see all kinds of, uh, of a range across occupations, education, income. It's a really good cross-section of the population, um, you know, as, as best that we could, uh, we could attain at, at this day, you know, at this time. Um, we had a, another podcast recording with uh, Professor Lottie Balin from uh, the MIT, and she was saying that actually people would assume that professors have a good work-life balance because they can set their own schedules and have a lot of flexibility. But apparently because they do a lot of you know, mentally um, uh, difficult jobs, they're having a harder time switching off. Um, than those who work in, in other jobs. Do you find this is true? <laughs> For myself? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's an interesting question because I think one of, the, one of the curiosities that we've explored and tried to push forward on is the issue of schedule control and really kind of interrogating the, the concept of flexibility. And it sounds great. Um, you know, the word itself really seems like a resource or something that is appealing to a lot of workers. But the question then becomes, well, you know, if, if, you're not, um, if you're not working fixed hours or if you're not uh, keeping a bit more of a, of a rigid schedule, what happens um, when work needs to be done and, you're, you know, you, you really would like to disengage? And so that could be at night. Um, you know, are, are you compelled to check an email check for emails at like 10 p.m. before you try to go to, to bed. And I've, I've done this myself, and it's been a huge mistake where uh, if you open up an angry email or a, an email that has demands, you know, it could have waited until the morning. I'm not quite sure sometimes why I did it. It's almost like, you know, you're, it could be a little bit of an addiction. Um, but, you know, then that, that stuff stays on your mind. Same thing with vacations, right? I mean, if you're thinking about, I guess if you value um, – being able to disengage from whatever we call work and have some kind of leisure, you know, if you want to go play volleyball or you want to go on vacation with your family or you want to just take a walk with your dog, um, are you able to just disengage from work for that period or are you still in it 50%, 70%? And, you know, some people think about their work after work hours and part of that thinking could be related to creative, engaging activities that people love and, and they're almost solving puzzles. Um, and I find that with my own work. But other kinds of thinking after hours could be related to, you know, a passive-aggressive boss or a, or a manager that's given you unclear directions um, or, you know, coworkers that are uh, 
giving you troubles, you know, and you can go on and on in terms of the things that might stay on the mind. So we're kind of exploring those different issues. And I guess back to the concept of flexibility, you know, it, it, it always sounds great, but you do hear a lot of stories from people, especially in our qualitative study, uh, where they say sometimes they wish they had a little bit more of that structure where, you know, once they're out, they kind of check out and, and it's and it's done. We hear, of course, a lot about the technolo- technology revolution and how this is going to bring more um, equality or lower inequalities, uh, how job quality will improve through technology, but it's also technology to blame. You already mentioned, you know, checking emails. And um, do you find that, that with the... Um, spreading of new technologies and remote work and telework opportunities. This has um, worse uh, implications for people's health or well-being. Well, you know, I think it's it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, I think on the one hand, I mean, there's research actually that, that shows that a lot of people, um, especially professionals, really like that kind of. Um, the capacity to check, the capacity to, to be able to read emails, especially just emails. I think emails can be less intrusive than, you know, getting a phone call. Um, so emails you can kind of check and then respond. But you, there are all these kind of unintended, I don't know if they're unintended consequences or what you'd, how you'd label them, but just the sense of, you know, you get an email and then what are the expectations mm-hmm. for the response? Are they, um, you know, is it immediate? Do you have to, do you have to re- reply right away? Um, I think sometimes in, in, in this era, people sort of expect <laughs> quick responses. I've had students sort of say, are you going to get back to me? And, and email, their email was only like a few hours ago. And I'm like, yeah, I, I will as soon as I can. And sometimes that's on the weekend. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, you know, I'm old enough now to remember a time where, you know, you didn't have that. You just had to either schedule a face-to-face meeting or the dreaded phone call. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, but then there are a lot of upsides. Like people talk about being more efficient and more effective at communicating tasks and so forth. But I think like any kind of communication technology, it can present, um, it can present a problem. And we found that the main problem is related to role blurring and that's, you know, checking, checking emails and then having to decide whether to respond and, and when to respond and that kind of thing. Um, we we um, read some of your previous interviews and, and there you mentioned this, you were speaking about this new theoretical perspective and these four stressors, which we found very interesting that you were grouping them and, and classifying them, these long working hours, the work pressure, the... Um, greater work family blurring or spillover and the enhanced uh, interpersonal conflict at the workplace. When you interviewed people, were they um, classifying or so were, were there some of these factors more um, prevalent? Were those that had a greater impact on their well-being? What, what was the, 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 the maybe the main three issues that people referred to as being um, having a negative impact on their on their work life. Yeah, so I think that came out of a, a theoretical perspective I've been developing is called the stress of higher status, and the idea there is that 
when you look at particular indicators of status like education and income and and also job authority is one in particular that kind of caught my attention early on what you see is that you know obviously those individuals uh, and to be clear I'm not talking about I'm not talking about like the top 1% you know that's common um the Donald Trumps of the world. I'm talking more about kind of higher status as you move up the education range or up the occupation range or up the income range. What we've noticed in our research is patterns related to what I call pressure points. And the first one is really critical. It's one that's cited often and has a huge impact. And it's called different things, but we call it job pressure. It's also called overload or over, in some cases, overwork. Although, like any social science um, endeavor, a lot of these concepts get blended. So some people refer to overwork as working 50 hours or more. But clearly, long working hours and excessive job pressure tend to be the two critical pressure points. For job authority, what we found there, it's kind of an interesting puzzle. Your earlier question was sort of what got me interested in this. One of the things that got me interested um, in the stress of higher status idea is that we noticed that people with high levels of job authority, and by that I mean people who can direct or control other others in the workplace, they decide um, about promotions or hiring or firing or they set the pay of other people. So they have power. But one of the interesting findings in the in the literature is that there doesn't seem to be any health benefits of having authority, which was a puzzle because usually um, people talk about higher socioeconomic status as having health benefits. And job authority is a classic in sociology, a classic indicator of higher SES or higher, you could call it social class. And so one of the things we noticed among people with more authority is the interpersonal conflict at work was basically one of the main issues and interpersonal conflict at work has a strongly negative effect on well-being and health so were it not for that job authority would actually have health benefits and then some of our other work looks at work work family role blurring and and some of that touches upon what you just talked about in terms of like communication technologies and the sending and receiving of work related communications after hours that's a big one. And then finally, how all of these things come together to shape work-life conflict or work-family conflict. So not having the time, the energy, or the attention that you'd like to have in one role because of the other. Mm. So basically also when people seek out more managerial positions because with the expectation that they will have greater autonomy in managing their time or maybe more flexibility – um, and a higher status, in fact, because they're managing other people, it puts them also under a lot of pressure or gives them a lot of responsibility because they have to manage everybody else. Is this the simplified? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's exactly, it's sort of the stress of higher status comes out of what everybody already knows. And that is, you know, I've had some friends say, well, of course, you know, earning more money comes with more responsibility. What are you telling me? And I'm, I'm stress of higher status is just simply formalizing that, and then tracing a line from that point to what it means for health and equality. And what it means for health and equality is, you know, people earning 50000 I'm talking U.S. or Canadian dollars here, but people earning, say, like $50,000 a year, um, would why don't they have better health uh, um, or why don't they feel more satisfied or why don't they sleep better 
um, relative to people, say, in the next lower income bracket. And part of that actually is because of the particular demands and stressors that come with, uh, economists call it the pain of earnings or the pain of money. Um, and in some ways that links into the whole, you know, can money buy happiness idea. And of course it does. Of course they're better off. They wouldn't, they wouldn't give the money back. They wouldn't give up the authority, but it's just the stress of higher status is just simply formalizing that in a way that then says, what does that ultimately mean for, income patterns, education patterns, occupation patterns in health. And health includes, you know, subjective well-being and physical symptoms and mental health symptoms. And what are these uh, health implications if you have a sustained period of, of work stress? I think the main implications, it seems to me, would be related to higher levels of psychological distress more anxiety, um, problems sleeping. I mean, you see that's, at least in my research in Canada and the U.S., is, is really showing a lot of implications for sleep quality and amount, you know, which then has a cyclical effect, right? I mean, if you're not sleeping well, um, at least <laughs> for me, very moody and irritable and, you know, you know, stuff that wouldn't normally bother you seems to bother you, so maybe you're you know, a particular demand at work or, or, or a particular email that maybe doesn't even mean anything, you're, you're seeing it in a different way. Um, but there's definitely a, a really rich literature around how these kinds of stressors um, can affect people's well-being. And, of course, there's the whole literature on, well, if the stressors aren't so bad if you have control or, you know, the demands aren't so bad, the classical, the, you know, job demands control idea. But, I think some of our research is kind of calling that into question. I mean, job authority is a classic indicator of control. Um, so why doesn't it make people feel better? Well, the reason why is because it comes with a lot of demands that don't always work out well for people. And it's especially problematic for people in the middle. So those people with authority over other people who also have people above them, <laughs> they're kind of, I don't want to, you know, maybe middle managers is one way to, refer to them, but they kind of have, it's almost like they have um, constrained authority in some ways. You know, we're, we're looking very specifically at um, work-life uh, measures and, and possibilities at the workplace, and, and we find that sometimes the CEO can commit or the board can commit to being a more family-friendly workplace or being a more flexible workplace or agile workplace, but then it comes down to the line manager's who then have to implement this on a daily basis, and 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 we see that this is that's the bottleneck of the whole process in the workplace and the working culture. If they feel that they cannot exercise their control or their managerial responsibilities because the people work remotely or they may not have had the training or the skills to really um, implement this on a day-to-day -day basis. So this is maybe also <coughs> to to what you're saying. Yeah, it's such a critical idea, really. The whole, I mean, there's there's a lot packed into what you just said in the sense that, on the one hand, um, is everybody going to be on the same page in the workplace in terms of, like, work-life needs? Um, you know, the term work-life balance for me is less useful than, than the whole idea of work-life needs. But then, 
you know, uh, workers' needs related to their family, say if they have a young child, might be quite different from <laughs> the workplace that, you know, ultimately the work still needs to get done, especially if it's a profit, you know, profit-making mm-hmm. endeavor. So how all of that sort of fits together or flows together. And then I think one of the big things that we find, especially in the qualitative work, is the extent to which there's open, direct communication about what the needs are. And I say direct here because I think some workers um, might feel a little intimidated, um, especially if they're trying to fit into that ideal worker norm of a worker who's always committed and is available and, you know, prioritizes the workplace. In that context, in that cultural context, how are you able to have open, direct communication? Um, And that gets even worse when economic times are tough or the job market's really uh, precarious. So if there's any threat of job loss or insecurity, then it makes those conversations even trickier, right? Because, you know, (laughs) ideal workers are the ones that are going to keep their jobs. Um, And so if if the workplace culture is one where... um, you know, work comes first, then any kind of message or even symbolically um, suggestive of family being prioritized could be a problem. But, you know, it varies so much by the workplace, too. I mean, we hear that a lot in our interviews that some places the supervisors and the managers get it because they have families and they've experienced this themselves. And uh, and then in, in those places, you hear workers just really, really happy and productive and morale is high. But if, if that's not happening, then you, you often hear the opposite. And I, I mean, just before when you mentioned the issue of uh, having difficulty sleeping, um, I still think that this is such a taboo. No, you wouldn't be able to go to your manager or your boss and say, I'm really not getting enough sleep because this <laughs> this project is on my mind all the time. And especially also psychological issues or mental health problems that you may get at the workplace. That's that's almost a worse situation than having a sick child at home and you would it's it's that seems to be now somehow more accepted than than really speaking about your mental health and, and your well being. Yeah. It's funny how these things play out. I mean we know um, that even like a 10 or 15 minute nap during the day, if you can do it, is immensely recharging and refreshing. And it's, in fact, I think you asked me a question about professors. I mean, I actually have a fortunate enough schedule where I do try to squeeze in a nap, not in my office. I'm actually, I go home and do it. <laughs> but, um, but it's like, it, it's almost like I've become quite good at just taking like a quick 10 minute, 15 minute shutdown. And then when I wake up, it's almost like a whole new recharging, um, uh, sense that I have or a refreshed um, feeling, and I'm way more productive in the afternoon. Now, I know that's hard. I mean, I, in fact, I wrote a piece recently on sleep, and I made the mistake of reading some of the reader comments, which I, you're supposed to never do. No. And somebody, somebody made a comment like, um, he's sort of disparaging of the idea of being able to take a nap or sleep. But, you know, it's funny. We think that way, and yet if the ultimate aim is – to get workers to be productive and creative and innovative. And we know that, you know, there's definitely strong evidence. I'm not talking like a two hour nap. I'm talking about like a 15 minute or even a walk actually is, you know, those things really can matter. So, um, but yeah, you're right. I think, I think you can't really bring up, I mean, that's a tricky thing. You can't really bring up, um, you know, how the project is undermining 
or how uh, how the work is actually undermining your your the quality mm-hmm. of your sleep or well being without there being maybe a sense that you're also not producing or or not being as effective a worker as you could be. Yeah, yeah uh, there seems to be like a contradiction between um, what would what conditions would favor you being more productive and more um, creative. Those needs. Um, are in contradiction with what normally you would be allowed to do, as you say. For example, you know, you could sit there f- five hours trying to um, come out, come up with your next PowerPoint presentation, and maybe if you would just go out for a five-minute walk or a ten-minute walk, you know, you could refresh yourself and get maybe some ideas, get your mind of it. But that seems to be really not accepted in in the workplaces. Yeah, you know, it's hard. It's again, I think things this kind of thing varies by individual, but my sense is that some kind of break or disengagement um during the day uh really makes a difference for people. Again, this probably matters more for people that are doing kind of more cognitive work or you know, they're thinking through puzzles or ideas or problems. Um, but also, you know, physical work as well, obviously makes a huge, has a huge effect. So I think, yeah, if, if that's possible to, to, to have that kind of a break. Okay. Maybe just a last before last question. Sure. Um, you know, there's this, uh, data set in Europe, the share data, which is, um, also a, a longitudinal questionnaire to people's, um, uh, aging and, and health and, and well-being. Mm-hmm. And some of the first research that comes out of it shows that, um, for certain uh, professions, uh, when you retire, you have a health benefit, especially from you know strenuous and physical work. You have better health after you retire. But for more of the cognitively difficult or, or mentally more exhausting or challenging jobs, actually, once you retire, you you start losing your your um, cognitive abilities more more quickly. So. There are some health benefits to work as well, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to it. I mean, I think just even the research that shows work people that are working are, are healthier than people that are not working. I think there's something, you know, and there's selection issues with that as well. People that are in poor health select out of the work workplace or workforce. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, those kinds of things, I mean, I think – I think even just keeping keeping the mind engaged on different activities, you know, you can think about like long long hours of of hard physical work or sitting in a you know truck driving a truck or or nursing where you're on your feet. Those kinds of things really we just hear story after story about how that just takes a toll on the body, um, and those kind of things probably end up hurting health in the long run, especially shift work and out and, and, you know, not getting accurate, uh, not getting enough sleep, for example, or getting sleep that's kind of all over the map. But yeah, definitely. I think the kinds of complex problem solving and, 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 um, but also just engaging with other workers. I think that's, you know, one of the things people talk about is the, the most pleasurable parts of their work are their coworkers and, and social interaction and engagement. And I can imagine that's a big loss for a lot of people when they leave work. Um, and, and you can think about even working in teams and, and how many great ideas come up when you're, when you're working with other people in teams and so forth. So of course that relates back to the, 
we probably don't have time to talk about it, but the whole issue of remote work and not being around coworkers, but being able to do work at home, for example, does cut off those ties to a large extent, which we know are beneficial. So it's another downside of that earlier point that we were talking about. Mm, when you were isolated. And, mm. Yeah. Okay, well, may, maybe just uh, a last question, which we uh, ask our, our uh, interview uh, subject here on the Work Life Hub podcast, because we are trying to link research to practitioners and workplaces, but also policy making. So if uh, I would ask you if you could give one advice to a CEO to enhance the well-being of uh, his employees, his workers, what would that be? One piece of advice. Wow. Um, this is always hard for me to do. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, think, I think the whole idea of really under, getting, being aware of the importance of workers being able to disengage. And by that, I don't, I don't mean, you know, drift off or not, or not remain connected to the work, but the importance of downtime and what that means in this day and age where everybody's connected and there's a 24 seven kind of mentality. I think mm -hmm. being aware of that kind of, of the, the value of disengagement um, and, you know, to be specific here, I'm talking about like vacation should be a hundred percent vacation, not well, you know, you need to check in and maybe be 70% on vacation. You need to check emails or be available. Um, but also I think being by disengagement, I also mean, you know, when people are trying to get away, let's say for a week or something, or even just at night to get away from the office, you know, what does it mean to, to be fully disengaged? Because for a CEO or people who are in charge, what you really want, again, is if you're interested in morale and productivity and, you know, a quality work, you know, worker, what's what's the best thing for them when they're not working? I mean, they can't be working all the time. So I think that's just important to keep in mind. And I think a lot of people do, but it's easy to lose sight of that um, because, again, ultimately the work has to get done and um, someone has to do it and has to do it well. And so those priorities often overshadow what we know is important and that's being able to disengage and, and recharge and, and kind of regroup thank you so much thank you very much for coming on our podcast and, and uh, being here with us for answering all our questions we really appreciate it and, and learned a lot from you thank you very much thank you my pleasure